0: You can be seated. Good morning, church. Good morning. I'm excited to get into what we have for today, but before I do that, I want to take just a second. Uh, Today in our culture is this day called Father's Day, and I'm excited for that. I, I know, as I say that, I know that Father's Day, like these kind of holidays, can be a mixed bag for some people in the room. I know for some people when a day like Father's Day rolls around, rather than it being joyful, instead it's a reminder of painful things, maybe people who aren't here anymore, maybe broken relationships, or maybe guilt over failings and things like that and I man, if that's, if that's you in this place today, if today is a hard day for your heart, then I just want to encourage you and say man, we love you and we're in that with you and your pastors would love to walk in that with you. But I also, I also at the same time as I acknowledge that, want to just say man, I don't want to miss the opportunity to, built into our culture to celebrate this beautiful good thing that God made and God gave us which is masculinity. God describes himself as a father, our creator, our sustainer, who made this world, who made a way for us. You know, He described himself as father. And there's something inherent in the way God designed dudes that just shows a unique piece of who he is and how he engages the world. And so we want to unapologetically celebrate that. A silly way we're doing that is that uh, I bought a stack of books, and so if you're a guy in the room, there's one on the, on the uh, there's a book on the little bar where you walk in, and that's for you, grab it, take it home, read it, and then text me about it, it'd be great. Uh, seriously, that's for you, uh, it's a John Piper book back there, if you are a guy in the room, grab one, that, that, that's our, our little happy Father's Day gift to you, but before we jump into it, I want you to join me in a prayer. We just sang these songs, right? We We sang about how how God is this rock that we can hide behind, who defends us. In this world, we sang about how God is a mighty fortress who has accomplished this work on our behalf. But our own strivings, like if that was what we were leaning on, like we'd be doomed. But instead, we have this fortress of a mighty God that we can lean into and receive and experience his protection. And then we, we sang about how, how Jesus is the one who actually, through his accomplished work, made a way to wash our sins away. That's the progression of what we sang. Sometimes we move through the songs and we know them, we recognize them, we don't really think about it right. But that's what we sang. And guys, that is the heart of the Father for you. That he made you, he loves you, he protects you. And part of the way he does that is through his accomplished work on your behalf to wash away your sins. Psalm 103 says this. This is not our psalm for today, but it's good for our prayer. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions for us. Verse 13, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows what we are made of, and he remembers that we are dust. Father, thank you so much for your heart of love and compassion and sacrifice and protection for us, your people. Thank you so much. And thank you for just the way you take such good care of us. You are really good, Father. For those of us in this room who have maybe distorted or broken or painful understandings of fatherhood because of the brokenness of this world, Holy Spirit, I ask that through your loving care and presence in our lives that you would redeem that in our hearts, that we would get to walk and rest in the beauty of your loving care and protection for us. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. So we are getting back into our series on the Psalms today. So if you have your Bible, you want to go ahead and open it to Psalm 23 is where we're going to be today. One of the most famous passages in all of the Bible. Like this is Psalm 23 is the one that's up there, like right next to John three sixteen. That one probably only has more. Uh, more people knowing it because it gets held up at signs at wrestling events, you know. But Psalm 23 is up there, right, in terms of some of the most well-known of all of Scripture. And I'll tell you guys, like, I, I, as the guy who gets to make the preaching schedule, most of the time I just kind of put it out there and I let our pastors sign up. But every now and then I, like, pull rank, and I'm like, this one's mine. And that's how this went down, is I was just like, nah, th- this... This scripture is really, really like intimate, like part of my story. It's something that's important to me, and I was just like, "Sorry, guys, this one's mine." Uh, and so I'm excited for this Psalm 23. You know, we talked about this a couple times so far, but Psalms, Psalms are often the kind of text that worm their way into our personal faith experience. You know, they they hit deep into the human heart, and just there's many people who follow Jesus end up connecting with certain psalms and different aspects and parts and times in their faith journey. that Psalm 23 is one of those texts for me. This was one of the first passages of Scripture I ever memorized. And it's a text that I come back to often. In fact, I actually preached this text on March 22, 2020. And if you do the math on that, that was the very first Sunday that St. Louis County was under a shelter at home order because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The previous Sunday, Red Tree Church, where I was pastoring, met. We met in the middle school. We had our normal gathering. And our elders had kind of met that weekend, and we like, oh no, I don't know about this whole COVID thing. I don't, know. I don't know, something might happen. We need to be ready for it. And Monday, boom, everything shuts down. We had to figure out what to do. We, we actually pre-recorded the sermon in my living room. Had, like, you, those of you guys who were at Red Tree at the time, like, we didn't own the <laughs> equipment to do this stuff, right? Like we set up my iPhone on a stool, pointed at me, like it was it was rough, right? But I tell you, I, I actually pretty rarely break from the planned sermon series, but that Sunday I, I did, and we went into Psalm 23. And we went there because, man, it was a freaky week. It was just scary. You know, we were all like trying to figure out what everything looked like. Medical professionals were running a mile a minute. Everybody else was trying to figure out if they were essential workers or not. It was just a scary time and my personal me, Sam, my anxiety was on absolute overdrive. Confessionally, guys, I've had a pretty personal relationship with worry and anxiety for a good chunk of my life. In spite of what I know in my head about God's goodness, about God's care for me, I often find myself struggling to believe And live that, kind of live in my heart, what I know is rooted in my head, about God's love, about his provision. It's something like that, that deep-rooted unbelief is something I actually have to repent of pretty continually. It's why Psalm 23 is so important to me, and it's why I jumped to that text that Sunday. God is our shepherd. God's our shepherd. He doesn't just love us. His love is present in our lives. His love looks a lot like caretaking. And if you know that phrase, if you know that word, you know what I mean. Present, caretaking love has a lot of implications in our lives and our heart. It means that we actually can rest. It means that our fears can actually be stilled. It means that we can trust Jesus to save our souls to redeem our hearts, to redeem our wounds, to walk with us in this broken and sinful world. I came back to this text a lot. March 2020 was no exception. And God used this text at that time in my heart and in my family to settle my soul down a little bit. My my prayer today is that he can do something similar for some of the troubled hearts in this room. So, read this text with me. Psalm 23 says this. I have to read it because we switched translations. I don't know it anymore. <laughs> the Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures, He leads me beside quiet waters, He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Pray with me, church. Father, we ask this morning, as we jump into a text, that for most of us has some level of familiarity. We ask, Jesus, that you would just hit us afresh. That you would give us just new open eyes and open hearts and open ears to hear from you what it is you have for us today. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do the ministry you promised you would do, that you would teach us from your word, that you would remind us of what we've forgotten, that you would convict us of our sin, and that each one of us would leave here today having heard from you what our heart needs. We love you, Jesus. We trust you for these things. We pray them in your name. Amen. So here's what I'd like to do today. The message of Psalm 23 is pretty simple, and I think it's pretty upfront in this poem, you know, God loves you in such a way that he cares for you in your day-to-day life. This is sometimes called a, a psalm of confidence, right? Like it's, it's just pretty out there. It has this beautiful and rich imagery. But what I'd like to do today is kind of pick through the imagery. There's two main metaphors that work their way through this psalm. We're going to work through them and to see how they give us a little bit of a unique angle on this plain, simple teaching of this psalm. And I really just think, I just think God's going to meet us in this. I think what he has for us today is going to become evident. There's just this truth that in this text, we see God as a shepherd to a flock of sheep. And we see God as a lavish host to an honored guest. Two main metaphors. And I think it's just going to bring us back to this, 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 this plain, confident declaration of this text, that our God loves us, that he loves to care for us. We'll look at a couple of questions that that declaration raises, you know, why, <laughs> how, and I think that'll land us on just some implications that I think can walk with us out of this space into our life as we step back into the world. Sound good? Awesome. Okay. So, Psalm 23, the speaker of this psalm, generally considered to be King David, it's pretty, pretty well attested to. The occasion of this psalm, when and why he wrote it, is not clear in the text, but there's a couple things we can infer. So, generally speaking, scholars believe that King David wrote this psalm later on in his reign, and there's a couple reasons for that. The first one is you know He uses these two metaphors, the metaphor of God as a shepherd and the metaphor of God as a lavish host, right? These are things that David had first-person experience of, but he didn't have first like personal experience of both of them until later in his life. He was a shepherd as a young boy and into early adulthood, and he was a king, but his kingdom wasn't well-established enough for him to be this kind of lavish host, until a little later on in his kingdom when he kind of set everything up. The other piece to this is that it seems that part of the occasion of this psalm is some real present danger and trouble in his life. You know, there's this, this reality of the, the image of the dark valley and God's provision and the table before enemies, right? And so a lot of scholars think, man, so, so David probably wrote this later in his kingdom, later in his reign. And then there's a couple major dangerous things that happened over the course of the later part of his reign that might have been the occasion for this psalm. We don't know any of those things for sure, right? But you can think of stories like Absalom's rebellion, Right? when when King David had to flee Jerusalem and as, as an older established king was living in the wilderness again, that sort of thing. We don't know it's that specifically, but something like that is probably connected to the occasion for this psalm. A king who's established, who knows what it means to be a poor shepherd, who knows what it means to be a wealthy king, and now he's looking at some present circumstances that are scary and causing him to come in his heart to this place of confidence, declaration of confidence in God's care and provision for him. And really quick, that that historical occasion piece, like it's good because it helps us kind of get our head there, but it really doesn't matter as much as what the text plainly shows us. The text gives us these two major metaphors. God is a shepherd to his sheep, and God is a lavish host. And I really think what we're going to find in this, the meat we're going to find in this text is going to be found in digging through those because David's a good writer, and he doesn't waste words, and he packs a lot into each of the metaphors, and I just think there's a lot of goodness in here that we just miss because we don't have like, the right context to necessarily know some of what's coming out in these metaphors. So let's, let's walk through these, each, each of the two metaphors one by one, to see what God has for us. The shepherd and his sheep, verse one, the Lord is my shepherd, I have what I need. Any shepherd in this day, and honestly any shepherd today, would understand this line immediately. Sheep who are kept don't have needs. This Hebrew word lo gets gets translated varyingly as need or want or not lacking. But regardless of your translation, regardless of which word your translation gives you, the idea is the same. Sheep don't worry about their needs because they have a shepherd Who cares for them? The opening line of this poem gives us really the whole truth of this text. Beloved, God is your shepherd. God is your shepherd. You shall not want, you do not have to worry about needs. Because you have a shepherd who cares for you, who's present. If you hear nothing else today, hear this, beloved. Your God cares for you. He cares about you. He cares for you. Do not lose this vital truth of the kingdom of God. God cares about you. You are not insignificant to him. And that's wild. But if you don't have that truth, like that is so foundational to the whole of the gospel that you, sinful, tiny little you, in this grand, massive universe, You are not insignificant to your God. He cares for you, which is just wild to think about. But man, what a comfort. Man, what a truth. Before we move on, I want to to point out a couple things here about the sort of shepherds that David is talking about and the sort of sheep. He's talking about the shepherds in David's day. Remember, he was a shepherd, right, in his young age, into early adulthood, cared for large flocks of sheep in the wastelands of the desert wilderness outside of Israel. Not exactly like the rolling, beautiful hills of Ireland that we think of when we think of sheep, right? This is caring for sheep in this context took intimate and dedicated care. Shepherds lived amongst their sheep while they were out to pasture. They spent their day with them. They slept with them at night. They cared for them. They protected them. It was beyond a full-time job. Think stay-at-home mom to 60 of the dumbest kids you've ever met. And there's a couple moms in the room who are like, mm, I can envision this. I know, I know what he's talking about. <laughs> oh, that was so mean. Because uh, this, this is one of the most important things you can know about sheep. Domestication has not been kind to them. Sheep are dumb. They're some of the dumbest, most helpless creatures on God's green earth. Domesticated sheep cannot survive apart from their shepherds. If a domesticated sheep falls on its side while sleeping, it will often get stuck and die. I mean, that's intense. Just fall over sleeping and that's kind of it. A shepherd's job is never done. I have this video I want to show you guys. It's probably a meme you've seen going around. If you could play this real quick, it's like a two-second song. This is perfect. That's about the intelligence level of your average domesticated sheep. Next time you pray to the Lord, your shepherd, to free you from sin... Remember this before you go running back to it. <laughs> Add in the harsh climate, the harsh like context of shepherding in David's day, and you end up with some really interesting caretakers. Look at what David says about God's shepherding of us. Verse two, he lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He takes this metaphor and adds in a lot of images, expands it through individual scenes within the life of a shepherd. Let's walk through each one. He lets me lie down in green pastures. Two things here. First notice the first thing God talks about in God's care for us is that he gives us rest. Guys, this could be a sermon series in and of itself, beloved of Jesus. You are invited to find rest in Jesus. Real rest. Rest for your body, your heart, your soul. There's an invitation of the Lord to you. He makes space for that. If you are the kind of person in this space who just is bent towards working and working and working and working to scheme and control and prove something. Hear this today. God makes space for you to rest. He lets you lie down in green pastures. This Hebrew word here is actually important. I'm going to butcher pronouncing this, but yarbise, I think as it is, it comes out in this whole English phrase, lets me lie down. This word specifically envisions a pack animal that's carrying a burden and its tender must find a place to take off its burden and make it lie down in rest. This word isn't normally used for sheep or herding animals. Normally it's used for pack animals. So why does David use this term in his poem? I think the reason is simple. See, green pastures were not exactly plentiful in this part of the world where these shepherds work. It took work to find them. And when they got there, by the time they got there, oftentimes the sheep were just too freaked out to rest. They were too scared. If you want to know something amazing and yet slightly not surprising about sheep, they will not lay down to rest unless they have full stomachs, are free of flies and bugs and pests, can feel the calm of the herd, and most importantly, are free of fear. These are finicky creatures any hint of fear about their surroundings, and they simply won't sleep. It's how they're wired. So the burden that the sheep carries isn't a pack load on its back. Rather, it's the fear in their hearts and their heads. So when the psalmist says the shepherd makes the sheep lie down and rest, he doesn't mean, he's not giving this image of a shepherd jumping on the sheep's back and like trying to force it down. No, 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 no. He means the shepherd feeds the flock takes them to a place away from pests, takes them away from predators, calms them, removing their burden so they can feel his care and safety and they lie down and rest because they can do not else when they're that cared for. This this removing of the burden to lie down is about the care the shepherd takes for the sheep. To put them in an environment that is so safe but they're so built for that they can do not else, but lay down and rest. He leads me beside quiet waters. As a pastor, this is one of my favorite phrases in Scripture. Sheep, oftentimes the domesticated sheep, are actually terrified of running water. This is because, you know, they got on the wool, and if they fall in the water, uh, they usually just drown because they can't stand up, they can't get out of it. And so they have this natural fear of running water. And oftentimes, sheep will not stoop to drink in water that is running too fast or is too loud. They prefer still water. Well, any good shepherd knows that running water is cleaner than still water. But if the sheep won't drink, what's the shepherd to do? Well, in David's day, they would often climb out into a stream and pick up rocks and build kind of a makeshift dam to separate some of the water that would sit kind of still and quiet so that the sheep would feel safe enough to come and take a drink. I love that. I love that because the reality is the water is safe for the sheep the whole time or the shepherd wouldn't take them there, right? But their fear keeps them from the life-giving water. So a good shepherd does the work necessary to ease their fear and give them water. What a God we serve. Doing an unnecessary task, right? The water is safe, the water is there. Doing an unnecessary task to create an environment where the sheep feels safe enough to actually go and take a drink. He renews my life, amen. I mean, that's what's being described here, right? This kind of present, intimate caretaking that just, just it's just extravagant in its care. Of course, it renews, it restores our souls. He leads me along right paths for his name's sake. And this is reminiscent of our time in Psalm 1 a couple of weeks ago, but there's also something really good here that I think we miss. See, a shepherd, when he leads, he doesn't drive. And this, this, is, this is an important difference. In our, in our day, we'll often make this, an, uh, this kind of analogy where we'll go, a shepherd, a shepherd's kind of like a cowboy. And there is some truth there, right, to like herding animals and those things. But the way a cowboy herds cows is really different from the way a sheep leads his sheep. See, a cowboy gets behind the cows, not always, there's more complexity to this, but a cowboy gets behind the cows and scares them into running. (laughs) Utilizes the natural fear of the herd to get them moving in the direction they want to go. From behind, whipping them up and getting them moving. But a shepherd wants his sheep to remain free of fear. So rather than getting behind them and whipping up their fear to drive them he walks in the midst of them or walks in the front of them to lead them behind them. They walk amongst him or behind him, feeling his presence. And it's the presence of the shepherd that helps calm the fears and anxieties of the sheep. I love that. Think, I don't know if you guys have noticed this yet at this point in the poem. Fear is not good for sheep, right? Like it doesn't work well for them. But look how this goes, how this continues on. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no danger for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The image here is of these deep and dry valleys in Israel's desert. These dry and dark places, these kind of cut channels, would allow shepherds, especially in dry seasons, to move their whole flock from pasture to pasture, stream to stream, and kind of by direct Routes and, and away from like, the wasteland and away from a lot of the predators. But these, 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 these pathways were kind of these valleys, right? And they were dark and the sun was cut off and they were scary. And sheep didn't like to walk through them. They didn't like to be taken into them. But look at the image he gives here. You walk with me through the valley. You walk into that space with me. He leads on right paths. And those right paths may go through dark valleys, but the dark valleys don't end up being scary because the shepherd's there. And the shepherd has a rod and a staff. A rod, a big old heavy club that he can use to beat up on whatever predators are coming after the sheep. A staff that he can use to cut off dangerous paths and draw the sheep in and keep them together. The present caretaking love and protection of the shepherd, present amongst the sheep, takes them through dark valleys takes them through dark valleys without fear, but with comfort. Come on. Beloved, this this is a truth for you here today. I believe we need to hear this. You can't live in a space where you don't fear danger because Jesus is with you. He's with you. Even now, even right now, our Lord, our shepherd, our God is with us. His strength. His presence, His route, His staff walks with us through this world, regardless of the context within which we find ourselves, regardless of how scary, how painful, how whatever the circumstances, we have a God who is like a shepherd, who walks with us, who brings His strength, His wisdom, His heart to bear to guide us through this life. Come on, church. I hope at this point you're starting to see where this text is going. God's present love for us looks a lot like caretaking. It speaks into our deepest fears. Speaks into some of the the deepest parts of the human heart. Well, let's let's finish this out. So David now, he switches the metaphor in verse 5. He moves from talking about a shepherd and his sheep to a lavish host and his guests. Now, by the way, if you at home are like super geeking out on this series and you're digging deep on these psalms, which... Please, more power to you. Uh, what you might notice if you read into this is that there's actually a couple layers going on here where David uses this metaphor of the lavish host to actually like, do a double-layered metaphor of some aspects of shepherding, and it's kind of interesting. We're not going to dig into that today because it's a little confusing. But if you're interested in that, you know, shoot me a text or an email, and I'll send you some cool resources on it. For our purposes today, we're going to look at this metaphor as David hands it to us, this, this lavish host and an honored guest. Read this with me, starting in verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Now remember, in this time, in this place, especially amongst royalty, amongst leaders, hospitality is a big deal. It's it's part of how your honor, your your person is represented to the community around you. The image here is of this this sort of lavish, kingly host. Think Think of someone, not necessarily a king, but someone wealthy, important, like someone with authority, and they're just honoring some guests. In this day, when this kind of person, when a king held a banquet, they would prepare the feast, prepare the table, and invite the guests The most honored guests, those who are like the stars of the show, the VIPs, would be anointed and bathed upon their arrival. Those sorts of things weren't things that most of the average person did day to day, right? There weren't access to showers or things like that. Perfumed oil would be poured on their head, down into their hair and their beard and things like that. Their cup would be filled with the choicest wine. They would be seated at the feast table, and they would just enjoy the party. These kind of occasions, in some contexts, could last for weeks or even months. The honored guests would enjoy the pleasure of the king in his house, at his table, as long as his hospitality lasted. As long as the party was going, the cup would keep getting filled. As long as the king's hospitality was extended, your cup would be full. It would be filled again and again and again. You can read about some of these lavish Kingly parties in a couple different texts in scripture. This is what David is pointing at. He's taking this relatively normal image that a lot of people would understand in that day, and he's putting it on overdrive in a couple specific ways. First, this host has set up his feasts in the presence of the honored guest's enemies. He's not just honoring this guest, but he's actively giving this guest protection, right? This is a way of, of the king being like, You don't get to mess with this guy. This this dude is on the no list, taken care of. He's a recipient of my hospitality, so deal with it. Second, the host fills the guest's cup forever. His cup overflows. The, The description here is of a party that never ends. The guest gets to stay in the house of the host, in this case the Lord, indefinitely. This guest gets to dwell in his hospitality forever. They always get to eat at his table. They always get to receive his oil, his anointing, his cup. He cares for them always. This host's hospitality is lavish to the point of being ridiculous. Put this next to the metaphor of the shepherd. And I think this poem leaves us with a couple of really important questions. I think the obvious thing of this poem is that according to this text, God loves you and me like crazy, right? I mean, just digging through this verse by verse, it's hard to come away from this text going, God really loves his people. God really loves his creation. This is is an insane amount of just lavish, generous, amazing love that God gives. So that raises a really good question, Why? Why? I mean, think about ins- how insanely hard it was to be a shepherd in that world. Your whole life was bent around these dumb sheep. That's a really hard life. It's so much work and it's so little payoff. You did all that and at the end of the day, you got sheep who can fall over in their sleep and die. There's, there's no way for that creature to ever repay the insane amount of work the shepherd takes on their behalf to care for them. It will never recreate the care given. Why would anyone commit to a life that hard? The reality is most shepherds did that in that day because they didn't have a choice. They needed the money. They were the youngest one in the family. That was David's deal. He didn't pick that job because he liked it. He was the youngest, so he got stuck with it. Like, that's, that's the way that world works. And look at the king. Why would a king give so much to a guest? That is, it's just ludicrous. What could possibly justify the expense, the risk, the time, the effort spent to honor a guest that lavishly? What kind of guest would warrant such behavior from a king? It's a really important question. Why would God be our shepherd? Why would this king, the king of the universe, make us his honored guests? Why would he care for us in the midst of our foolish fear, in the midst of our strange needs, in the midst of our inability to repay anything? Why would he give so much of himself and do so much for us? Listen, you guys are great. But like, You know, us, us, the God of the universe, the creator, sustainer God. Beloved, the reality is that this is the very character of God. This is who he is. He treats us like this because this is who he is. He loves us. He loves to take care of us. Our God is a loving and caretaking God. It is his person. He takes care of us lavishly, so lavishly that it's that it's difficult for us to comprehend. He he loves us so amazingly well. He he takes care of our needs like a shepherd does to a sheep. He loves us so amazingly much that he honors us like a lavish king to an honored guest. And it doesn't appear to make any sense on the surface, but the reality is this is who God is. He can do not else. His love is powerful, it's intense, it's present. And for us, here in this world, in this life, it looks a lot like caretaking. And it's just who he is. If this wasn't how God treated us, it would not be the God of the Bible. That's his character, his person. Lavish love, lavish love. And that, that truth, that the God we worship is that good, that his goodness, his love is so intense, so deep, so perfect, so present—that has some implications in our life. That's not a truth you can just walk past and go, "Oh, cool, yeah, I should probably get like a T-shirt or something." That kind of love means something in your life. It has implications. So I want to do this to kind of land us today. I want to walk through just kind of three ep- three implications of this text that have been kind of worming their way through my heart as I've been praying over this this week. And I think this will get us to a good place to kind of end our time meditating on this. The first one is this. God practically meets needs for his creatures in this life. That's a really specific and if you think about it, really intense sentence. But I think it's important. God practically meets needs for his creatures in this life. There's just no getting around what the text is getting at here. God is like a shepherd to sheep. Sheep, shepherds meet the needs of sheep. There's so much here. I mean, God is the creator. He's the sustainer of the universe. He he makes the planet to rotate, the sun to rise, the rain to fall, your atoms to hold together. He sees every aspect of creation from microbes in the water to quasar stars in space. God himself... Jesus says in Matthew 6, consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather in barns, but your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than they? God cares about your present needs here and now on this planet, in this life. One of my favorite scriptures is another word from Jesus himself. In Luke 11, Jesus says, what father among you, if his son asked for a fish, would give him a snake instead of a fish? This is the part I like because it's so weird. Or if we ask for an egg, we'd give him a scorpion. It's not even close. <laughs> My kids ask for eggs all the time. Throwing scorpions. Sometimes, actually, now that we're talking about it. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God cares about your life. Love God cares about your needs here and now. Seek Him out. Seek Him out. Tell Him what's going on in your heart. Express your real needs to Him. Yes, like the kind of spiritual, like deep gospel needs in our heart, our sins, the things that weigh us down, the things that burden us. But your, your real, like your physical needs as well. God cares for you. He feeds sparrows, He keeps track of the microbes in the water. He cares about you and your health and your bank account and your job and your family and all those things. Bring your heart to him. Bring your real needs to him. Like many in this room, you know, I could share testimonies of God's faithfulness to provide for my, my and my family's needs. You know, one time, several years ago, I was working three part-time jobs while working at a church and doing my church planning training, trying to get ready to go plan a church in, in our city. And we just, with all that stuff, we couldn't make the numbers work. Millie was a newborn, you guys know my daughter, and it was just wild. (laughs) But that summer, more than once, I mean more than once, I would come home from some random job or a second shift or whatever, exhausted and stressed out and freaking out, to find an anonymous envelope filled with cash that paid our bills that month, sitting on my porch or in my mailbox. That's the kind of thing our God does. He cares for us, he cares for our our actual needs. We were in a place where we were seeking radical obedience to the Lord and He faithfully provided for our needs. Our electricity never got shut off, you know. Things like that. This is who our God is. It's the kind of thing He does in this world. Which leads us to a really important second implication of this text. This present caretaking love of our God can overpower our fear and anxiety in this world. It can. Remember the shepherd in the valley of death? It was his presence that casts out the fear of the sheep. Beloved, this can be true for us as well. God's love and his spirit is present here and now. And guys, that just does something to a human heart when we rest in that truth. Dr. Carolyn Purvis is a Christian child psychologist who did some kind of groundbreaking research on caring for children who experienced hardship in early life. One of the things she observed in her research is that A child who's raised in a healthy, nurturing environment tends to naturally grow up with the belief that the world is safe and that they'll be cared for. Now this, especially those of you who are like parents who've done your best to love and care for your kids, like that's kind of beautiful and heartwarming to hear that, right? Like, oh, that's so sweet. There's a problem though. That isn't true, right? The world isn't a safe place. And there are plenty of times when no one shows up to meet a need. So why do these kids in these kind of homes believe this beautiful untruth? It's because good caretaking makes it feel true. That's the simple reality of it. Present and passionate caretaking love overrides the fear of a broken and sinful world because it shows up over and above the broken and sinful world we live in. At some point, those kids got to grow up and figure out, eh, the world's scary <laughs> and mom doesn't always show up, right? But when that kid's a little baby, mom and dad are doing their best to love and care for him. That present, passionate, caretaking love makes that seem true. It overrides the present danger of this world. That's insane. Beloved, this is the absolute bedrock truth of the present ministry of Jesus for you and me here and now. 1 John 4 reminds us that the perfect love of God casts out fear. Similarly, the text we just read in Matthew 6 starts with Jesus telling his followers not to worry and ends with him telling his followers not to worry. It includes one of the most comforting phrases I think in all scripture. Your heavenly father knows what you need. What a beautiful truth to be reminded of. Your heavenly father knows he knows what you need. Beloved of Jesus, your God knows what you need. He knows who you are. He knows your circumstances. He knows the hurts you've endured. He knows the things that keep you up at night. He sees you. He knows. And he loves to take care of you. If anything in this world can ease our fears, can calm our anxieties, can cause us to cast our anxieties away, is it not this beautiful truth? But there's one problem here. And this kind of leads to this last implication. It's one thing to read this poem and just go, wow. God loves us. And he loves to meet our needs physically here on earth. And he delights to calm our fears and anxieties. It's beautiful. And we can sit in a room like this, reading it together, having sung the songs we sang, and go, yes and amen. That's so wonderful. But guys, we all live in this broken and sinful world. And we all know that, that isn't always true. Some people's needs don't seem to get met. And terrible things happen in this world. Scary, painful things that we can't control. So how can all that beautiful stuff I just said about God delighting to meet our needs, about God meeting us in our fear, and creating a space where we can cast our worries on, how can that actually be true if God allows things like poverty and hunger and violence to live in this world alongside us? How can we possibly trust and his love, and his care in such a present way. In such a present way to to live without fear or anxiety. Because I think that leads us to the most important implication of this text and where I want to land us today. And that's this. God's present and caretaking love is ultimately shown to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is. Our God is a God who loves and cares for his creation. And you guys know the story. Sin broke that relationship and made suffering and sin and evil a reality in this world. The rebellion of the creation broke that relationship. But God does not allow sin the final say in his creation. In fact, he's such a good shepherd and such a lavish host that he takes the sinful, rebellious us and grants us a seat of honor while humbling himself to serve us and meet our needs. Jesus came into this world and lived a perfect, sinful, sinless life and died an unjust sinner's death. And rose from the dead by the power of the Spirit and ascended to heaven from which he will return to make us holy and sinless. Amen. He accomplished this work. And his accomplished work here in this church allows us to live in perfection with him forever. When Christ returns and restores all things, the curse will be no more. And all that is evil will cease. And every wrong and injustice that has ever been done to you will be paid for. And will be atoned and will be made right. And you can live in perfection with him forever. Beloved, truly our cup overflows. The hospitality of our Lord does not end. Because of Jesus, we can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Guys, this promise is as good as accomplished. Can trust that promise. So when we, when we live, we walk in this sinful and broken world and we experience this mix of God's amazing, loving, present caretaking, and also the reality of the curse and injustice is done to us and rebellious decisions we make and their consequences, when we walk in that stew of beautiful caretaking love of God and the the muss and muck of this world, we can remember that the promise of Jesus is as good as accomplished. God's caretaking love will outlast the power of the curse by a measure of, I don't know, Forever. Forever. When this world hurts us, when we hurt ourselves, we can fall fresh on the love and care of our God. Because church, his care, his love, will never end. It will outlast every ounce of power that sin has over you and over this world. The caretaking, beautiful love of our God is not just present. It's forever. His hospitality does not run dry. Beloved, he is lavish with his love. So, with that gospel in mind, with that good news in mind, as we land today, Chris, if you want to come up, Chris is going to sing this song kind of based on this psalm and take us back through this reflecting it. I want to ask you to consider a couple of things during this time of reflection before we take communion together and end our time. The first one is this. For those of you in this space who have yet to come to Christ in confession and dependence on Him, I want to encourage you to consider that. Consider what it means to come to Christ. To experience the celebration of that gospel that you just heard. To receive a saving work in your life. Beloved, listen. I know this world is harsh and I know if you've lived in it for more than two minutes you've probably experienced some awful stuff but Jesus loves you and I can't put enough weight behind that sentence to help you realize what it means he loves you and his love is so lavish so present and so strong I guarantee you it can speak life and freedom over the worst the curse has ever had to offer you consider that today for those of you in the space who are in Christ, man, let's sing this song together. I'd encourage you, look at these lyrics, contemplate them, think about them. <laughs> Maybe mentally and emotionally, take a step back today and allow the present, loving heart of God to speak in your needs. Maybe bring in your needs today in a way that's honest and true. Maybe even for Maybe actually They sing this song and That's once we're done, end time. Take some time, pray, be with the Lord,